You can uh, turn again, as uh, we did this morning, back to 1 Corinthians 11, as it's uh, a day in which we're reflecting upon the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Uh, this morning we looked at uh, the, the fact that we are, as Christians, to joyfully observe the Lord's Supper. We have a, there is a Christian necessity in observing uh, the Lord's Supper as it comes to us in a, in a divine command, a, a gracious divine command that we are to joyfully receive as we reflect upon the fact that our Christ died for us. And, um, and also that particular blessing of the Lord's Supper comes in its character as a means of grace whereby God blesses his gathered assembly uh, based upon the benefits of the finished work of Christ. Well, this evening we're going to look at the theological foundation for the importance of the Lord's Supper. So considering its observation, considering the fact that we, uh, that we are to observe it and that we are to observe it as a remembrance of Christ's death till he comes again and it serves as a proclamation unto that time, what are those things that undergird it? What is the theology that we have as a blessed foundation to that particular Sacrament. So we'll look at that this evening, but I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians, not but, <laughs> I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 23, and simply to the end of 26, and then we'll have a look at the theological foundation for the importance of the Lord's Supper. So 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 23, the word of God. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would ask you now to bless us in this time of worship, the preaching of your word. Once again, we uh, plead that you give us your spirit, uh, that you'd fill us uh, with the knowledge and the illumination that comes by virtue of your word of God and by virtue of the spirit working in us and for us and unto your glory. And we do pray that you'd help us as our brother uh, prayed that, Lord God, the saints would be edified, sanctified, in this act of worship, and Lord God, that sinners would be saved to the praise of your glorious grace. Do bless us now, for Christ's sake, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, a number of things come out in, this, in just this small section of Paul's rehearsal of the institution of the Lord's Supper, that is, the institution which the Lord Christ himself gave on the eve of his sacrifice, on the eve of his death. And we want to look at uh, a number of those things. Now, we're not exhausting the theology or the theological foundations for the Lord's Supper, but we are spending some time on a number of those, and a number of those that we see embedded in the text in just these, uh, in just these four verses. The first thing that we want to note, the first theological foundation for the importance of the Lord's Supper that we want to note is that it's seen in the doctrine of Scripture or in the doctrine of the Word of God. There is conspicuous language here used by the Apostle Paul in verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. This is, this is in, in essence, um, or in some, the doctrine uh, of revelation itself. That God, that the Holy Spirit, 
um, carried men along, carried holy uh, prophets and apostles along such that he delivers his will to the church. He delivers the revelation of the Son of God to the sons of men by virtue of his revelation, by virtue of his special revelation. And the Lord's Supper comes as that same sort of thing that is delivered, that is received from uh, received from the apostle in this case, and then delivered to Christians. This is the, the transmission of truth. This obtains not only with regards to special revelation in the scriptures, but also subsequent generations as the, the torch is carried, if you will, from the apostolic age through time, the, uh, the, the risen Christ by his spirit working to bring his church along um, in the truth of Holy Scripture. So there's this transmission of truth that is going on. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. This is an, an apostolic pattern that the Apostle Paul uses. He uses that same language in 1 Corinthians uh, 15 as he uh, explicates the gospel, as we noted this morning, to dash away this rejection of the resurrection of the dead. He speaks with regards to delivering to them uh, a particular message that beforehand was received by the Apostle Paul and that also beforehand his recipients received by his own proclamation. And so we have the doctrine of Scripture as that which undergirds the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. We ought to recognize that these same Scriptures which speak to us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, speak to us in this language of the Lord Jesus Christ, do this in remembrance of me. And so the gathering of the Lord's Supper, the, the exercise of observing the Lord's Supper according to the command of our blessed Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes by virtue of his special revelation to us in the word of God. And it ought to be noted that, you know, we, the Lord's Supper, of course we know this, but a rehearsal is good, uh, calling our minds into remembrance, that the Lord's Supper is not a tradition of men. The Lord's Supper, the, the fact that we observe the Lord's Supper, the, the fact that we observe the Lord's Supper in, um, uh, in Christian churches throughout the world does not come to us as a tradition of man. Now, there are perversions of the Lord's Supper that are the traditions of men, but insofar as we faithfully observe the Lord's Supper in those churches of his, it is such that we rest upon not the traditions of men, but upon the very revelation of of God. We have the doctrine of Scripture as uh, the primacy for a fount of knowledge in Christian religion. We have the fact that we, the Scripture comes to us and it provides us those safe confines and the, the exclusivity for the truth. We have in the Word of God it, uh, uh, an exclusive corpus of divinely inspired literature that brings to us the Son of God before our eyes as it were crucified that we may lay hold of the truth of Christ and that we may observe, having been saved by amazing and victorious grace, the supper of the sacrifice of that selfsame Son. We have the Word of God as the ground and foundation for the Lord's Supper. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Now, as well, and secondly, in the background of the Lord's Supper is most certainly the doctrine of God. I received from the Lord that which I also received. 
The, the doctrine of the good God, the triune God of heaven and earth, is in the background of the Lord's Supper. Why? What does this have to do, the doctrine of God, with the Lord's Supper? It is God who has all authority to command proper obedience, first off. It is God alone who has revealed himself in the Holy Scriptures, who provides that which the Lord's Supper both signifies and facilitates. So the Lord God provides to us this, this Lord's Supper, and that self-same Lord God provides what it signifies and what it facilitates, signifying the very death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that it was the Lord God Almighty uh, who, before the foundation of the world, determined that this Christ would come forth, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that he would in due time die as a, as a sacrifice and a substitute for sinners for all those to whom the father had uh, all those whom the father had given to him and this remembrance that we have in the lord's supper is such that we're remembering that christ whom god sent before the foundation of the world determining to save a multitude of sinners which no man can number and it's that god that gives us those things that come to us as benefits in observing the Lord's Supper. Remember, we noted this morning, and we'll, we'll close with a little bit of that, uh, uh, but at, from a different vantage point this evening, we noted that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. That the Lord God, that the Lord Christ, who is very God and very man, yet one Christ, at the right hand of the Father, sends forth his Spirit in the preaching of the Word, in prayer, in baptism, and in the Lord's Supper, and he feeds us and nourishes us, strengthening us in our faith. It is that blessed triune God who, who sent forth his Son and who sends forth measures of grace as we remember his Son. Uh, one of the things that, that we see in the language with regards to the Lord's Supper that I just want to mention because it's connected to the doctrine of God is that we have a horizontal communion, yes, with the gathered saints at the Lord's Supper as a, a gathering assembly, generally speaking, as we gather for church. But at the Lord's Supper, it is called a communion of the body of Christ and a communion of the blood of Christ. That doesn't pertain to our horizontal relationships, but rather it pertains to a vertical communion that we have with God at the Lord's Supper. There's a, and you probably know this well, um, there, there's a, in chapter two of our confession of faith, after paragraph three, where it speaks concerning the Trinity. So in chapter one, we have the perfections of God, the fact that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his glorious perfections. In fact, paragraphs one and two. But then in paragraph three, it speaks with regards to the Trinity, that in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. And it closes, I'm actually mingling the language of the shorter catechism with paragraph three, but there you go, that's what we have. But in explicating the Trinity, uh, our forebears close that paragraph with some blessed language. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation for all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him? Communion with God. As we're rehearsing here theological foundations for the importance of the Lord's Supper, the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation for all our communion with God. And at the Lord's Supper, it is called a communion with 
of the body of Christ and a communion of the blood of Christ. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, we read at verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that some, uh, so that, uh, excuse me, um, uh, backing, uh, backing up, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, uh, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a fellowship that we have, a communion that we have with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, very God and very man. God is faithful to engender. God is faithful to stir up. God is faithful to retain and maintain the fellowship or communion that we have with him through our Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine of God is seen as an undergirding for the Lord's Supper and his authority and his power and in his sovereignty. It was such that, or by such, that he sent forth his son as that one who was foreordained to give his life upon Calvary's cross. It is that selfsame authority, power, and sovereignty by which God calls dead sinners to life by virtue of the perfect completion of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is of the Lord. He provides the blessed Savior, and he provides that blessed, amazing grace salvation that we avail of by virtue of that selfsame Savior. And so that subsequent obedience that God graciously gives his servants that comes from above is given, and the holy, uh, the holy observation of the Lord's Supper falls under that blessed banner of the Christian's joyful obedience. This is, again, uh, our brother Hansard. The saints, when they sup with Christ, have meat and drink with others know no, which others know not of. Those believers who slight or neglect any of the holy administrations and ordinance of God do want that, notice, fellowship with the Father and that communion with Jesus Christ in the Spirit, which other believers do enjoy. So the doctrine of God, notice this language of communion, is triune. It is fellowship with the Father and that communion with Jesus Christ in the Spirit. That is what we as believers enjoy when we observe in the Lord's Supper, when we observe the Lord's Supper, that communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the doctrine of God is most assuredly in the background as a theological foundation for our observance of the Lord's Supper. And hopefully as we move along through these, we're appreciating the depth and the richness of the Lord's Supper. As we noted this morning, that it is not simply an exercise of Christians that we are to go through in some empty religious observance. It's not a rote exercise, but it is an exercise of worship that is richly filled with theological undergirding and that has as its primary focus the Savior of our Christian hearts. Thirdly, we want to note the doctrine of the person of Christ. Now, we noted that in a little bit this morning. Remember when we, when we were speaking about do this in remembrance of me, we noted that that remembrance ought to land upon the person 
and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then certainly a theological undergirding or a theological foundation for our observance of the Lord's Supper is seen in the doctrine of the person of Christ. The Supper is a remembrance of Christ and an ordinance whereby believers are strengthened in the benefits of his death. Now there's an important undergirding that we have with regards to the doctrine of Christ and it comes at the point of ensuring that we do not fall into theological error at the point of the Lord's Supper. Um, you'll perhaps recall in your Christian sojourn that there are those that there are those who believe, for example, that the very real physical presence of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, who is uh, captured, if you will, in space at the right hand of the Father, is somehow present in the bread and in the blood of the Lord's Supper. That the the body, uh, that the bread and the wine are actually transferred or transubstantiated into the very. Uh, the very body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the doctrine of Christ was a very important doctrine in arguing against perversions of the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, when we consider the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a Christological impossibility for Christ to be present in his human nature in, in wafers and in wine throughout the gathering of the assembled saints. He is at the right hand of the Father. Remember that quote from Richard Barcelos this morning. He is at the right hand of his Father in his human nature, yet everywhere according to his divine nature, even with us when we're gathered for the Lord's Supper. So there is most certainly, though, a presence with regards to Christ when the Lord's Supper is being observed. Remember that blessed language of, uh, of Revelation, the the. The, uh, the opening of the book of Revelation where it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ as being the one who walks amongst the lampstands. What, what a blessed comfort and, 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 and boost of courage it is to the Christian to know that our Lord Jesus Christ walks amongst his lampstands. Now, he does not walk amongst his lampstands in his human nature because Christ in his human nature is exalted to the right hand of the Father on high. But by virtue of his omnipresence and by virtue of the condescension of the blessed Son of God, he is with us when we're gathered for the Lord's Supper. He is there, and as it were, with that language of revelation, walking amongst his lampstands. There's a when we, when we think about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's this, this wonderful juxtaposition, if you will, with regards to his divinity and with regards to his humanity, such which obtained in the arguments over the Lord's Supper. And that juxtaposition is this, that he is located with respect to his humanity, but he is everywhere and not really located with respect to his divinity. In other words, we, we can read language like Calvin with regards to the incarnation and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvin uses the language with regards to the incarnation, and he says, uh, he says something like, he, he came down from heaven, that is the Son of God, he came down from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb to go about the earth and to, and to die upon the cross, yet he has always filled the heavens and the earth as he has from the beginning. 
So with regards to the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, even with the incarnation in view, he did not depart heaven to come to earth as if now he's absent from heaven, absent from Father and Spirit in some sort of weird Greco-Roman way, but he has omnipresence. Like Father and Spirit, he has an unchanging, unbounded everywhereness, yet he is not located because he is most true spirit. And so Christ, even in the incarnation, is filling the very heavens and the earth as he always has from the beginning. He is uh, that one who cannot be contained in, in houses made by human hands, but rather is uh, even above the heaven of heavens, they being unable to contain him. On the flip side of that, his humanity does not share that particular attribute. There is no ubiquity that is an everywhereness to the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, Christ is, according to his human nature, again, at the right hand of the Father. He is located somewhere with respect to his present and abiding reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he does not share the omnipresence. Uh, his human nature does not share the omnipresence of his divinity. So all of that to come back to the Lord's Supper, we do not have a supper wherein the literal body of the Lord Jesus Christ is everywhere located in the bread, nor that the blood of Christ is everywhere located in the wine, but we do, as we'll see later, have the sure reality that just as there uh, just as the bread and the wine are physically present and nourishing our Christian physical selves, so too the Lord Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, is nourishing us and strengthening us by the benefits wrought by him upon the cross of Calvary. So this is Raymond speaking with regards to the doctrine of Christ as it pertains to the Lord's Supper. Both the Roman Catholic view and Lutheran view contend that the communicant, that is the Christian participating, is actually feeding upon the physical body and blood of Christ. But since both views advocate that Christ is physically present in the elements, grave theological problems arise relative to the nature of Christ's humanity, since both must ascribe ubiquity or everywhereness to his humanity. But this is to destroy the true humanity of Christ and to forsake Chalcedon's Christology, the difference of natures being by no means removed because of the union, but the property of each nature being preserved. And so the doctrine of, his, uh, of Christ is important with regards to our doctrine of the Lord's Supper in seeing what it truly means, what it is, and what it speaks to with regards to the elements themselves, the bread and the wine. Well, moving on then, we want to note, we're actually not moving on quite yet because we need to appreciate something. And I think this is perhaps something that may be lost in, you know, in the Christian, not I think, it is something that's lost in the Christian church today. A, uh, and and not, I'm not saying in this church, but sort of generally speaking, is a proper reverence and a proper observance and a proper appreciation for what the Lord's Supper is and for what the Lord's Supper means. I think it can be handled lightly by the Church of Christ in our, in our modern time. Why we want to say that, as our confession says, the doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, 
by consecration of a priest or by any other way is repugnant, not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason. It overthrows the nature of the ordinance and hath been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. While we want to hold that in one hand, while we want to maintain that in one hand, we want to yet positively say, as we noted this morning, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally present, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. We, we should have a proper, get, getting back to the doctrine of the scriptures, we should always hold a proper, uh, a proper balance with regards to our observance of the Lord's Supper. We reject on the one side those blasphemies, those things that are repugnant to scripture and even common sense and reason, but we don't do so to the exclusion of those blessed things that the scripture communicates to us, that the Lord's Supper in its remembrance is also a means of grace whereby we are fed by the risen and exalted Christ through his spirit. Fourthly, we want to note the doctrine of worship. So as we rehearse the theological foundations for the importance of the Lord's Supper, we want to note the doctrine of worship. There is a doctrine of worship that we have as Christians. There is informed by the word of God and it is in the background, it undergirds the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because the doctrine of the Lord's Supper is an element, is an aspect of worship. Um, remember both this, uh, this morning, both in our, uh, in our confessions, declaration of the doctrine of faith and the doctrine of worship, it sets forth certain things in worship that are means whereby the risen Christ strengthens his people. Remember prayer, the word of God, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and other means appointed of God. And these are all given in the context of worship. We had a, a conversation this morning about the, uh, someone had asked about Christians, you know, administering the Lord's Supper in their home to, to families, individual Christians having a, a Lord's Supper in the home. Uh, we need to recognize that the scriptures expect that the Lord's Supper is given within the context of the gathered church. In fact, here, here in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, if you're there, if you're not, you can find your way back. Notice in 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 17, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you have come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now notice as well, for first of all, when you come together as a church... So the Lord's Supper is to be observed within the context of the gathered church. That's what the Apostle Paul anticipates and expects here, and that's what the Word of God speaks to, that we gather together in the context of worship. So when you come together as a church, and with regards to the Lord's Supper as a, an element of worship, we want to note that it is God alone who establishes the bounds and rules of his worship. So it's only from the word of God, of course, then, that we find that meat for us to resolve our doctrine of the Lord's Supper, to observe it, and to observe it in a manner in which God 
has instructed us to do. And there's a measure of blessed simplicity that we have that Christ has given us in its institution and that Paul has rehearsed here with regards to the administration of the Lord's Supper. He broke the bread and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. There's a, there's a blessed simplicity in new covenant religion with regards to our, our you know, ceremonies, if you will, or with regards to our ordinances of that particular covenant. In the old covenant, it was, um, it, it was if, I, if I can use the language, a, a, very, a very involved um, you know, almost slavish obedience to, the, to a meticulous observance of the worship of God. It was right and it was holy. But there was, there was, in order to set forth the glory of God, in order to separate the nation of Israel from the countries that surrounded them, in order to, to highlight and to set forth and to anticipate the Savior of men, the Lord Jesus Christ, there was quite an involved meticulousness to Old Covenant worship in the ceremonial law. Here in the New Covenant, with that anticipated one having come, we have this blessed simplicity in the observance of the Lord's Supper. It is God alone who establishes the bounds and the rules of worship, and he has established as those aspects of worship, uh, of the worship of him um, in the New Testament, as the reading of the scriptures, the preaching of the scriptures, the hearing of the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to him. Notice, with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. It's something that we ought to keep in mind, and maybe you can, you can try to make the best mental note that you can make, but if you have pen and paper, you can, you can write it down. As we prepare our hearts for worship every Lord's Day, as we prepare our hearts to come into the sanctuary of God, to come into the house of God, and with our fellows worship that great God, we are to approach it with this heart, uh, this heart state of being, understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. When we engage in those elements of the Lord's Supper, we're to be marked by those things. Uh, an understanding, to understand that this, as a part of worship, is such that we're, we're engaging in a communion with our Savior. We have the communion of the body and the blood of Christ as we're engaging in this worship. To understand what it means to be engaged in this element of worship, to understand who it is that we're remembering, to understand what that one did, who we remember, and to understand that at that time and in that element of worship, God by his spirit, the risen and exalted Christ by his spirit is feeding his people. It is a blessed act of worship that is engaged with an understanding. It's engaged in with faith. We have as, uh, as Christians this blessed gift and grace of faith whereby we can be sure that the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. When we gather for this element of worship, the Lord's Supper, we understand that as often as we eat this bread and drink this 
cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes, and in so doing, we're resting by faith upon the promises of God. We're resting by this faith upon the promise of God that if we believe and when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved. That safely in Christ, there is there, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in him. Having believed, uh, having believed our, our sins are forgiven. And in Christ, we have a righteousness that avails with the Father, even the very righteousness of Christ himself. We lay hold by faith at the Lord's Supper, the promises of God. Reverence and, and godly fear. Reverence and godly fear. When we, when we come into this place, there is to be something that changes. Not, you know, not, in, you know, not in some sort of weird and, and you know, mystical and ethereal way, but in a very real and spiritual way. We, we come from the realm of the common to the realm of the sacred when we come into the house of God for worship because we're engaging in sacred things. The, the preaching of the word of God the reading of the word of God. Remember, this isn't the reading of a dusty tome slapped together by men in collusion over the course of 1,500 years. This is the very word of the living and true and triune God that we have in the scriptures. So when we come into this place, these, you know, we're to, we're to enter in, if you will, to this state of reverence and this state of godly fear. And it's different from out there. There's, you know, there's a clip going on. You, you may have seen it, Mike. Others may have seen it. A clip going, uh, going around saying that all of life is worship. No, not really. Worship is confined to the house of God when the people of God come in to gather on the day of God and engage in pre preaching, the reading of the scriptures, prayer, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. All of life is not worship. All of life we are, in all of life we are under God, and in all of life we ought to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of that blessed God, but there is something different when we come from the common into the sacred to gather together as God's people, as Christ's kin, to observe the worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when you come into church on the Lord's Day, Think of that. Think of the reverence and godly fear that we are to engage in as we gather together as the saints of Christ. Fifthly, we have the doctrine of covenant theology. The doctrine of the covenants in the scriptures that are clearly set forth to us from beginning to end, and the language is in the text. Notice at verse 22, or excuse me, 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's a very heavy thing going on in the remembrance of the Lord's Supper, in addition to much of what we've already discussed. But that, that seed promise in Genesis 3.15 is in view with respect to the link between covenant and the Lord's Supper. The very one promised by virtue of that curse upon the serpent and the promise to Adam and Eve that there is this, that there will be this hero born of woman who will crush the serpent with his heel, that very one in time and in history on the eve of crushing the head of the serpent institutes the very meal that will be a remembrance of his conquering, a remembrance of his victory. 
What a wonderful thing. And that first promise in the garden is the promise of the new covenant. The covenant is not yet ratified. The covenant of grace, as it's given there in the gospel, given to Adam and Eve in the garden, the, it's not yet ratified, the covenant of grace. It is ratified, though, in time and in history by the blood shedding of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when the covenant of grace was truly ratified in the new covenant promised to those in the old. You can turn with me to the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31, and hopefully you're familiar with this, but this is in the background when Christ administers the Lord's Supper and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, and it's in view when the Apostle Paul rehearses the very institution that the Lord gave. So notice in Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So notice that language of new covenant. There's a day coming. The day was not yet at the time of Jeremiah, but there is this day coming, the Lord says. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the, land, uh, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which I broke, uh, which they broke, excuse me, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So there's this old covenant that the people of Israel broke, but there's this new covenant given, this promise of the new covenant being given that will not be like that old covenant. They're not the same. They're not the same in substance. The old covenant is not an administration of the covenant of grace, and it certainly is not the covenant of grace, properly speaking. And so there is this new covenant coming. Notice verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Just a little bit of a, an aside there. Notice that language, the closing sentence. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You know, there's a juxtaposition between the language of God no longer remembering sins and us in the Lord's Supper remembering that particular reality. That by virtue of the doing and the dying and rising again of the Son of God, in the Lord's Supper, a specific focus upon his dying, the very dying that ratified this promised new covenant, in our remembrance of that, we're remembering the fact that God, as it were, remembers no more our sins because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. What a blessed thing we have. And so this language of the new covenant is announced by Jeremiah. It is simply, if you will, a uh, a farther steps, to use the, the language of our, our, our confession, it is a farther steps reality in announcing that proto-gospel that was given in the garden, that there is a hero coming, born of a woman, who will save those who are under the law. There is a hero born of woman who will crush the serpent with his heel. So getting back to 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul rehearsing his words, says, writes, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the God of the covenant. We are remembering the covenant itself. And we are remembering the perfect covenant keeper, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a a blessed thing in our Lord Jesus Christ. The covenant maker, him being very God, becomes covenant keeper in the taking on of our humanity to make us covenant breakers, the sons of the living God. What a blessed thing we remember in the doing and the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant in my blood. God has condescended to speak with the sons of men by virtue of covenant. And that covenant of grace is seen in the background when we observe the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper calls the participant to reflect on the covenantal faithfulness of God. This is Spurgeon. I would have you earnest students of all the deeds of the conquering Messiah. I would have you conversant with the life of our beloved. But, oh, forget not his person, for the text says this do in remembrance of me. It is Christ's glorious person who ought to be the object of our remembrance. And that person who is the object of our remembrance perfected the covenant in his doing and dying and rising again. So covenant theology, the fact that God has condescended by way of covenant to communicate with the sons of men and the blessed highness of covenant communication is seen in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ secured a salvation for a multitude which no man can number out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation by virtue of ratifying perfectly the covenant of grace in his blood. Sixthly, we have, and moving, excuse me, to lastly, we have the doctrine of the cross. And this, this is certainly an obvious one because it is, as we hone in with these theological foundations, that that is at the core, that is at the center of our observance of the Lord's Supper, the doctrine of the cross. How is it that the hero born of woman would crush the serpent with his heel? It's by virtue of the cross of Calvary. It's by virtue of that cross wherein and whereby he secures the salvation of that multitude which no man can number from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Notice the language of the text is using the language of broken body and shed blood to speak with regards to the cross of Jesus Christ. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, this do in remembrance of me. So this broken body and shed blood, of course, pertains to the cross of Christ. Now, when it says, this is my body which is broken for you, that doesn't mean that Christ's bones were broken. Now, in fact, there's, there's a, a connection in the gospel accounts to the Old Testament and probably Psalm 22, where it speaks of not a, not a bone uh, in his body was broken. It's a messianic prophecy fulfilled at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This probably has to do, this language of broken body has to do with Christ taking in his body breach upon breach. The nails in his hands, the nails in his feet, uh, the spear to the side, and even before that, the, uh, the, the lashings and the bruisings that he received on the road to the cross. This is uh, 
This is Matthew Henry on this. Though a bone of him was not broken, for all his breaking did not weaken him, yet his flesh was broken with breach upon breach, and his wounds were multiplied, and that pained him. God complains that he is broken with the whorish heart of sinners, his law broken, our covenants with him broken. Now justice requires breach for breach, and Christ was broken to satisfy that demand. Think about that for a moment. That So when we gather together for the Lord's Supper, when you gather together for the Lord's Supper and you're engaging in that remembrance, in our continual efforts as Christians to not see it as rote ceremony, but to celebrate it and remember it and engage in it aright, we are to dwell among or dwell uh, dwell. Uh, on not just all, all of the things that we've discussed, but almost particularly and peculiarly because of the language of institution upon the fact that Christ took breach upon breach in his body because we, breach upon breach, broke the law of God. We see at the cross of Christ, Christ breached for our breaches. Christ bruised for our bruisings of the law of God. Christ broken, as it were, for our breaking of the law of God and the covenant of the Most High. And so when we read this language, my body which is broken for you, understand it in that sense. And what a, what a glorious thing it is, this, this doctrine of the cross. As, as we noted that language this morning, if we, as Christians, peruse the diary of our memories, to use that language of Spurgeon again, if we reflect upon uh, our lives as sinners outside of the grace of God and even reflect upon the fact that as Christians we still break the law of God, then a quick transition to the cross of Christ ought to be glorious and heartwhelming and something that stirs up the fire of Christian belief in so great a one who would condescend from so great a height to assume our humanity to take breach upon breach in his body and to shed efficacious blood drop upon drop for our salvation. We have wonderful language in places, in the most interesting of places with regards to the doctrine of cross. You can, the cross. You can turn with me to 1 Peter for a moment. 1 Peter, interesting places where we, and when I, when I say interesting places, it's because it's, you wouldn't really expect such a high doctrine of the cross to be sort of planted into this place. Now, we expect it because we read the Bible and we, we, we see it and we know it, but if we were just, you know, sort of thinking, uh, thinking on a particular line of thought here, if, you know, if we were to... Um, if we were to create a, a document and you know, write a letter to someone with regards to the cross of Christ to explain it, uh, we probably wouldn't do it in the context of exhorting servants to submit to masters. We would probably explicate it in some sort of systematic theological way. But notice how the cross of Christ is planted in this exhortation uh, for servants to be submissive to those who are over them. Notice in 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 21. For to this you were called, that is servanthood, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 
Now notice verse 24, blessed cross language, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. That is the doctrine of the cross that is remembered at the Lord's Supper. When we reflect upon his body broken and upon his blood shed, we we reflect upon that Isaiah 53 reality that is in the background of the mind of Peter that he bore our griefs, he bore our sorrows. He was bruised for our iniquities. He himself suffered and took uh, in his own body our sins upon the tree for a blessed reason that we sinners having died to sin might live for righteousness. And one of those things wherein we live for righteousness is gathering together for the observance of the Lord's Supper, a remembrance of this very cross work that Christ did on our behalf. What a blessed thing we have at the cross of Christ. I know that's preaching to the choir, of course, as Christians, but remember, we, we don't move having first understood the cross, <laughs> but remember, I didn't mean that deliberately with regards to remembrance, but remember, um, remember that we constantly need exhortations to dwell uh, with our Christian minds upon the doing and dying of Christ because we are so prone to forget. And so fresh visions, fresh impulses, uh, fresh winds of the doctrine of Christ are to constantly be given to the Christian because it's, because it's there that we find our salvation. It's there we find the Christ of our salvation. It's there we find this blessed substitutionary sacrifice rendered for us. We could not pay the debt. Christ came to pay it, that he might bring many sons to glory. And lastly and finally, as we work towards a close, we have the doctrine of of communion with God. The doctrine of communion with God. We noticed this morning with regards to this as a means of grace, so we don't need to spend too much time on this, but we need to appreciate as Christians the blessed fact that at the cross and at the cross and you know at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ was not then finished with his people. Remember, he, he promises his disciples because they were, they were weary and, uh, uh, and worrying that w- with Christ's departure, that would mean, in essence, in essence, a departure of the benefits that come with Christ. You know, they didn't want him to leave them. But remember Christ's answer. It is good for you. It is for your, your benefit that I go because I am going to send the Spirit, another comforter to you. And in this doctrine of communion with God, what a blessed thing that Christ has not stopped in working for his people, but he ever lives at the right hand of the Father to intercede for his people and to send by his Spirit refreshings of growth in faith and nourishings in our faith that we might daily have the strength in this lower world to serve our God, to rejoice in our Christ, and to constantly sing the praises of the benefits of his redemption. And at the Lord's Supper, we have this communion with him. Yes, a horizontal communion with our fellows. Yes, a horizontal communion with one another, but a vertical communion with the very triune God of heaven, a vertical communion with the exalted Son, 
by his spirit, wherein we have this communion of the body of Christ and the communion of the blood of Christ, as we see in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. This, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. We are, the, are all those who feed ourselves by faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in eating and in drink, drinking, we feed our faith. We, by the risen and exalted Christ, avail of the benefits of the Spirit uh, who, who brings good things in our hearts, who brings the nourishings, who brings the strengthenings, who brings the growth in our walk with Christ in this lower world. What a blessing we have in the Lord's Supper. Hopefully in only a, you know, in only a, a couple of hours in reflecting upon the Lord's Supper, we can in some measure gain an appreciation for what it truly is, for what it truly conveys, so that the next time we so gather together with our fellows and in the act of taking the bread and taking the wine and in that act of remembrance, we really are stealing our minds to reflect upon so great a Christ and so great a salvation. May God bless our hearts as we gather in worship. May God bless our hearts in every element of worship. And as our study focused this morning on the Lord's Supper, may God in the gathering for the remembrance of himself strengthen us by his spirit that we might in this lower world give praise and honor to the triune God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this doctrine of the Lord's Supper. We rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you that we, you have given us these things whereby we can avail of the risen Christ, his benefits, the, the strengthenings, the nourishings of the Spirit uh, to bring us about in this walk, in this sojourn, in this lower world. We pray that you would give, and give us Christian hearts of a, appreciation and recognition for all of those elements of worship that when we come into this place, we would not count it a common thing, but a sacred thing to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to sing the praises of victorious grace, to rejoice in our Savior, and to avail of the blessings of the Spirit of God. Do go with us into this evening, go with us into this week. Help us by your Spirit to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of so glorious a gospel. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.